1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit MPBOnline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
2: A contractor ever tell you oh, the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself? Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and this is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is the program where you can call in right now for the entire hour to um, get the answers to the healthcare questions that you want. We realize some listeners aren't able to do that right now, or maybe you have a question that comes up later. Uh, something that we said sparks your brain and uh, generates a question. You can always email us. That email address is remedy. At mpbonline.org. I hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning uh, throughout the state and wherever you're listening. We do have a couple of people that uh, I think even overseas that listen online. You can do that uh, live by going to mpbonline, or you can uh, archive. Uh, go to the archive there and uh, look at past programs, or you can do it with a podcasting app too. Any podcasting app that you have, you can just search for Southern Remedy and download the program and all of our Southern Remedy lineup up throughout the week to listen at your leisure. But I think... Looking at the radar right before we came on, looks like we're probably going to get some rain in the state, all through the state. I know certain parts of the state have gotten a little bit of rain, but if you live where I live, uh, that isn't, it's been pretty barren and dry for the most part. So hopefully that will help out uh, at least a little bit. We're going to need a lot more to catch back up where we need to be. Lots of things in health care these days, lots of choices, lots of uh of different challenges for different people and what they have. And uh, it can seem a little bit overwhelming. I was having a discussion yesterday with someone and just uh, sort of walking through some things. You know, on one hand, as we advance in technology with medicine, uh, we have a lot more to offer people, a lot more to offer in the ways of controlling some things and maybe even curing some things that we didn't have a cure for even just a few years ago. But then also, uh, it, we also can be more specific about it. In other words, we can do it in a way that doesn't have a lot of fi- side effects or at least tries to minimize that. But still, it is incredibly complex. And with more of those medications and different modalities, therapies, surgeries to do that, uh, it is really difficult sometimes to get that information to the patient in a way that they can understand it. And uh, But every, every conversation about a therapeutic, uh, we should be thinking, I say we physicians and patients should be thinking about shared decision-making where we present the information to the patient, the patient based on that information about how well this has been looked at, how well this intervention is, or maybe a prevention strategy in preventing something, and then what are the risks involved with that. And then after that discussion, to make a shared decision about which direction to go in, But sometimes it is a bit confusing. I think a lot of patients are frustrated sometimes because they say, you know, I I just want to, isn't there just one clear pathway for me? And there may be five or even ten different uh, things that you can do. And, uh, again, sort of good and bad, but it can be confusing at times for people to to make those choices. So think about that when you go to your physician. Remind us about that um, as we, you know, have those discussions about, uh, different things and by all means, one thing that, that I hear sometimes on the program is, pay, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners will call in and say, you know, I just don't feel like I was given enough time to make those decisions, and I was sort of scared to ask this question. There's there's never a bad question in trying to understand what's going on with your health, whether that's a symptom, a new medication, maybe potential concerns you have about something. Maybe there's a misconception there that can be uh, alleviated by your physician. So don't be afraid of those questions. Questions are good. They lead us toward... A better understanding, better communication, better knowledge of what's going on, and probably it's going to be a lot easier to treat whatever your physician is engaging you with if they have all that information and if they know sort of what you're where you're coming from. So, just a couple of things to think about about being prepared about uh, your interaction with your physician, whether that's a phone call or an actual visit. Um, those are some of the things you want to you want to think about. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Speaking of email, this comes from a listener that says, is there any way to improve severe obstructive sleep apnea? I am normal-sized. I do not snore. Uh, uh, I do not smoke, but I'm very tired. I've used a CPAP machine for two months. So not a whole lot of info on this, but I'll, I w- we'll talk a little bit about sleep disorders and obstructive sleep apnea since uh, these were sort of the questions about that. And what can you do about that? So when you hear somebody say, hey, I've been diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea or OSA, that's just an acronym for it um usually that will be through a couple of different ways one is sort of the old way the traditional way that we did it were uh based on some symptoms and base, based on a, a physical exam too and those symptoms might be loud snoring at night apneic spells at night that are witnessed by someone else that just means that you um, that you quit breathing for a period of time um and um morning headaches, sleepiness throughout the day, uh, unexplained weight gain, unexplained high blood pressure that seems to not be uh, re, um, responding to the normal treatment. All these things can be some indicators that you might have that on physical exam. you can Sometimes you can look, there's a scoring system that a lot of times um, anesthesiologists will use too uh, where you basically look in the back of the mouth and look at the soft tissue that's there. But, uh, the definitive way to, uh, test for this is a sleep study. And this is a study that looks at a number of things. So, it looks at the quality of your sleep and just because you go to sleep and wake up and it's eight hours in between that the quality of the sleep may be lacking in other words you might not get to the right stages of sleep particularly uh, REM sleep not the band but uh, REM stands for rapid eye movement and that's something that we need as humans to really have a restful uh, sleep throughout the night and uh, to function really so if you even if you're getting eight hours or more You may not be getting the right kind of sleep. They also look at oxygen levels throughout the night. So they put a little uh, tape tape on your finger and uh, measure those. They measure uh, other different things, sort of brainwave activity while you sleep. They measure um, how you are breathing. So, uh, you know, sometimes you can, if you're the the whole sort of hallmark of obstructive sleep apnea is the problem is that you've got excess tissue, Around the back of your throat, and basically it is obstructing air movement from the outside of your body into your lungs. So there are certain. Uh, muscle con- contractions and uh, rhythms of breathing that are associated that with that as well. So you either get that in the office or you can do it at home too. There is a, a pretty good validated home way of testing, and if your score is high enough, there's an apnea index then you would be diagnosed with that. Now, there's plenty of other uh, causes of sleep uh, disturbance. So you could have something called central sleep apnea. There's all kinds of parasomnias, restless leg syndrome, and lots of other things that can interfere with your sleep, certainly caffeine, uh, excess exercise late at night. So when the, uh, the, our listener asks the question, can you do anything to improve that, I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of assume that they've been diagnosed with this uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, CPAP, which is a little device or BiPAP that delivers pressurized air, usually in, uh, in, in two different ways when you breathe in and when you breathe out. And that allows those tissues, a sort of floppy tissue uh, in the back of your throat to stay open so that that air gets to the lungs where it needs to and then comes back out. Um, you don't have to snore um, to have sleep apnea. Uh, Thin people can get it too, so that's not an exclusion for, you know, the diagnosis. Um, And if you're doing the CPAP machine, usually most people, if it's fitted correctly, and sometimes that can be an issue in just getting the right kind of fit and the right kind of settings for it, then you should notice an improvement pretty quickly within a couple of weeks uh, in how you feel overall. In fact, that's one of the best things. You know, I tell people, you know, I think you need to get a sleep study, and they're like, eh, I don't know if I need to get that or not. But they get it, and they go, you know, go through with the CPAP, and they're like, oh, I feel so much better. Thank you so much for doing that. But if you're not getting an improvement after two months, like our listener, you probably need to go back to a sleep specialist and have them either look at the mask or uh, maybe look for something else that's causing the problems, because it might be one of those other causes. Um, of course, any kind of sleep disorder, you want to have good sleep hygiene, meaning you want where you're going to sleep to not have a lot of distractions, try to reduce nor- noise and light levels, because that's the way our body is designed to sleep under those conditions. That also includes electronic devices and phones. Some people will say, well, i just read on my phone to go to sleep and get sleepy. That nope, probably Maybe something you can change there. A regular book is fine, but certainly you don't want to activate your brain too much so it can rest and go on to sleep. Um, And then, of course, we mentioned, like, medications. Sometimes medications can have those side effects, and you might need to talk to your physician about that. Or the things that we eat, like caffeine. Um, Excess water that would fill our bladder up to the point where we'd have to get up and sort of fragment our sleep. So you do have to think about those other kinds of things even if you're being treated with CPAP. So a couple of things there about sleep apnea to think about. Let's go to T in Memphis. Good morning, T. It's
0: interesting that you're talking about sleep. I, I am I'm finding that now, as I get older, I can be sitting, uh, let's say, looking at something on the my phone, and before I know it, I'm falling asleep. And sometimes, I fall asleep, and I don't really intend to fall asleep. And I'm just wondering, is that just a natural thing? As you get older, you're going to start getting sleepy and falling asleep during the day, or should I be eating differently or exercising differently, or what? Can I do the Yeah. Make sure I yeah Let's say if I'm driving and I pull up to a traffic light, I don't want to fall asleep. Right. right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and did you say you'd already been diagnosed with sleep apnea or had not? I have not.
0: I have not. Okay. Had any time.
2: Yeah, as as we get older, the sometimes the amount of sleep that we require can change. Not a whole lot, but it can change a little bit. You've I've probably run into people that say, "Hey, you know now I feel really rested with 5-6 hours of sleep a night." But most of us are going to need about 7 to 10 hours, somewhere in that range to have really good sleep. But you just described some of the symptoms of uh, a sleep disturbance like sleep apnea. So falling asleep in conversations, and there's some screening tech tools for this too, falling asleep in conversations, falling asleep at a stoplight, um, driving for long distances, so just because you get older does not mean that you develop those symptoms. the The amount of time that you sleep might be changing, but those are all symptoms that you might have sleep apnea, and certainly some of those are dangerous for you and other people too. Uh, like you said, you don't want to, you know, fall asleep while you're in traffic, uh, just waiting around for that light to turn. Um, so you might need to have, you know, somebody look at that.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. Let's go to John in Alabama. Good morning, John.
3: Uh, good morning, Doctor Stewart. Um, I'm hoping you can uh, give me a solution to some uh, to a problem that I caused. I've got an appointment coming up with my doctor, my GP, uh, on Monday. Two weeks ago, I saw him for a an ongoing skin condition, um, and he prescribed a uh, course of prednisone on a diminishing schedule. I guess you're familiar with that? Uh, yeah, is first this like
2: pre- prednisone by mouth you're talking about?
3: Uh-huh. 10, yeah. ten milligram tablets, uh, starting with a dose of five, the next day a dose, uh, rather a uh, dose of five, uh, and stepping down to four, three, two, and then one, and then I go in and see them. Well, I completely screwed up that uh, schedule. I took one dose of five tablets and then went immediately to the four for three days, three for three days. And what I ended up with was 10 extra prednisone, which I'm trying to build back into the diminishing schedule. Uh, How important is that? Should I uh, reschedule the appointment? Uh, Does this totally mess things up?
2: No, actually it doesn't in this case. So um, prednisone is used, so it's basically an anti-inflammatory medication, right? So it's, um, and I'm guessing that this type of skin condition that you have is probably allergic in in nature or uh, inflammatory in nature. So a lot of times They'll um, are atopic in nature was another word we would use. So a lot of times we'll do this as a short co- course of steroids. It starts off with a larger dose and then decreases. So although we write that out, um, uh, this is sort of trick or the trade right here. There's no data to support any one regimen of tapering off the steroids works better than another one. Um, and so in your case, that's great because you didn't mess anything up. Um, so, you know, as long as you start off, you know, pretty big and then sort of come down, and usually a week's worth, it's not that big a deal on the taper. Um, if you've got 10 t- tablets left, I think you'd be fine. Did you say you took like three this past? What, what was the last dose that you took?
3: Um the uh, the schedule was supposed to be five for three days and then four for three days until you got down to just one tablet for three days and then the next day uh, the appointment, the follow-up right. appointment. Right. And um, I took one of the five pill doses and then went immediately to the four, and that left ten extra tablets to <laughs> to build right. back into the thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reassured. Really
2: I think you could, so right now the last dose you took was of the four tablets, the 40 milligrams?
3: Yeah, uh, the the four, well, let's see, yes, I took a four today, and then um, the rest I'm going to take uh, three and a two, uh, and then uh, the last three days I'll take a single tablet.
2: Yeah, I'd I just continue where you are right now to to do like they said. It's not going to be that, that big a difference um, from, you know, not doing the other extra days of the five. So that should be fine. Uh, but, again, at dosage for something like this. Now, certainly prednisone is used very specifically with certain doses for certain conditions. But in a situation like this, both the initial dose that you give, there's not as much evidence to suggest. You know, there's sort of a range that we usually shoot for, and then um, depending on the condition, and then how you decrease it over time with that taper, it's it's not going to make that much difference. So I think you're safe. You didn't screw anything up. It's probably not going to change. I wouldn't change the appointment. I would just keep it and just let them know what you did when you get there. It's not going to be that big a deal.
3: Great. Thank you very much.
2: All right. Thank you for calling. We do appreciate it. You know, we talked a little bit about it the first of the hour and we've talked about this in the past, uh, in past programs about some of the things you can do to be the most prepared to make, uh, your f- visit with your physician or healthcare provider, uh, to give it the most bang for the buck is to, uh, be prepared for it. So there's lots of times when I've had to delay making decisions with patients just because we didn't have all the information. And sometimes that's just a part of it and you have to get that information. But it, in particular, if If it's the first time you've seen a physician or... If there's some other physicians that you've seen, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of things that can go on, and thankfully, we do have, you know, electronic medical records in our systems now that talk to one another, so a lot of times we can pull that up and see what happened, uh, but sometimes we can't. So being prepared just in case of having a copy of that for your physician, maybe they can scan that into their system, um, or, you know, just having it in case they need it is always better than if you you don't. Because one of the things I appreciate uh, with my patients is when they do think about that or think about, hey, I, I saw, you know, this cardiologist or I saw a nephrologist since I saw you, here's here's a copy of their note in labs. And it might even save you, you know, getting more labs. I recently saw somebody that was uh, seen in the hospital and I didn't really have to get any lab work because I could see the labs that were in the hospital. So, you know, we want to reduce waste as much as possible so that we're not really uh, not just repeating things a lot. Uh, Gone are the days where you just automatically got lab work and EKG and a chest X-ray, no matter what, when you went to the physician. So we Try to practice a little bit more efficiently and, uh, you know, uh, try to do do things that are going to be beneficial but uh, not do more than what we need uh, for our patients because that is sort of wasting resources for the system and uh, just uh, giving you a a higher bill. So we just want to practice good value-based medicine like that. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. Email us. That email address is remedy at uh, org. Let's go to Mark from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Mark. Hello? Yes, sir. You're on the air. Hey.
4: Um. Okay. So this is. I, I have a neighbor that. He's 82 years old, and I guess I'm trying to be an advocate for him. He, he has stage four lung cancer, and it is metastatic to his bones and his shoulder and to his brain. the the pain that the pain in his um the pain that is in his shoulder is really really bad now. But they haven't really prescribed him anything for that pain. Who does he need to reach out to for? Pain management?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, we've, we've, you know, certainly there's been a lot in the news and a lot from the medical profession about our realization that we probably over, over prescribed opioid narcotics uh, for pain, for chronic pain in particular back in the 90s uh, in 2000s, but um, it still has a very good, um, you know, effect, and there's plenty of other things that we can use now. So if he's not getting anything from pain, this is one of those situations that the cause of the pain is likely to not get any better at this point with stage 4 lung cancer that's metastasized to these other areas, And but there can be some other modalities that might help. Um, Radiation therapy is one that's been used, particularly in some focal areas of bone-type pain from uh, metastatic cancers. Uh, There's various things that a pain specialist can do. Uh, Or, you know, in this situation, uh, maybe even just a little bit of narcotic pain medication, whether that's short or long-acting, might be appropriate here uh because we don't want i think in all of the messaging and realization that we probably overprescribe for people who uh who didn't need it for the the periods of time that we were given it there is a need for it for a lot of people particularly in this situation so I would say I'd start with his main physician, but if he's not getting anywhere there, and they're like, "No, we can't do anything," to request an appointment with a pain specialty clinic. So these are usually anesthesiologists. There's an extra training that they go through to be pain specialists, and they can do some things, prescribe some medications that are will be specific for that type of pain, uh, and can be very helpful in this situation.
4: Okay. Well, he, he, and he's currently going through radiation treatment, and, and, and mm-hmm. the focal point has been the bones. How long does that usually take to provide some kind of pain relief? Because the doctor did tell him that the radiation may provide some pain relief, but this is his second week that he's doing that. But it's, it's not – I mean, he, he said he gets some relief for about an hour or so, but is it – is that something that kicks in in a week or, or two weeks or something? Or you
2: know? it, It's a little bit more long longer than that. So usually you're talking about four to six weeks to see maximum of effect, but there may be some things that he could be prescribed or have other interventions for the pain while you're sort of bridging over to that gap. Uh, okay. And, of course, not, nothing's a guarantee either. I, I certainly wouldn't want, a patient to you know just be waiting to get pain relief when there may be some other things that we can do right now to get them to that point.
4: Okay. All right, but a well, pain,
2: pain pain specialists are really good at what they do and uh they're good at pinpointing the pain, trying to minimize side effects and trying to get good pain relief and in this situation I'd say this this patient uh this person that you described definitely needs it.
5: Okay. Oh, thank you sir yes sir thank
2: you mark let's go to rex from louisiana <laughs>
5: uh, about uh, 6 weeks ago i had a cortisone shot in my knee
1: uh-huh i had
5: developed i developed pain in my knee and i got a cortisone shot about 6 weeks ago and since that time i've had leg cramps in my lower in my calf muscles at night I just wanted to know, how long does the the, uh, cortisone stay in my system or a person's system, and what can I do to get around this? I've I've been drinking a lot of water for five years or so. Yeah. Could this be the cause of it?
2: Uh, It could. I mean, that's possible, but to be limited to that one, it's the same leg you got the injection, is that right? Yeah, no, both legs. Oh, both of them. Probably not then. Yeah, I'd say this is probably not related to the injection itself. It might be something else that's happening. But to your other question about how long does that last – you can have that stay in the, in the joint itself and that, that space that they inject it into for at least a couple of weeks and sometimes even longer. You do absorb a little bit of it, and sometimes steroids, this is a, you know, cortisone is a steroid. It can cause uh, changes in your electrolytes like sodium, potassium, that kind of thing, but usually it's pretty negligible if it's a joint injection. Um but if it's, if it's been going on since then, you might have something else. I don't know if they've checked, like, your magnesium level or potassium or anything like that, but that might be something that they may need to check just to make sure that's not um, abnormal and maybe contributing to that.
5: Okay. Since that time, though, it's gotten a lot more complicated. I had, I had my uh, vaccine for flu and COVID, and I had my wellness exam uh-huh. on Medicare, and during that time, my knee was still hurting. This was about two and a half weeks ago. The doctor suggested uh, and yeah and you put that on there.
2: Like and a gel that Volteran. you put on? Yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah, and I used that for about a week. And it did work wonders, but I am have a problem with taking NSAIDs anyway. It makes me bleed from all orifices, orifices and, and so I, I stay away from them. I'm just wondering if this could be added to my um, desiccation. I still feel like I'm dehydrated to some degree. I try to drink a lot of water.
2: Did they do any lab work when you went back two weeks ago for, you know, for to look at other things?
5: Yes, I knew you'd ask me that. <laughs> they did. <And laughs> yeah. And it showed my my bun number. My doctor said it showed that it was high, and that he thought it might be dehydration.
2: Yeah, you probably just need to follow up with him because if you're drinking enough and you don't have other problems, you know there may be something going on with your kidneys then uh, that you're just not able to keep up with those fluid fluid losses. If if that there's also a lot of stuff that could cause that. Back to the Voltaren. I'm a big fan of that, too. Um, The good thing, as you mentioned, like NSAIDs sometimes can cause a ton of problems like stomach upset, gastritis. Um, They can cause kidney function, can interfere with your blood pressure. But the topical ones actually are pretty good, and they don't um, have a lot of those systemic effects. So uh, if you got some good relief from that, that one's probably pretty safe. And certainly that shouldn't cause any problem with with the cramping, but... If you had a number that was abnormal, I think you, you might need to just follow back up with them, uh, particularly if you've increased the amount of fluids that you're drinking and it's still not giving you a relief from that.
5: Okay. Thank you.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. Let's go from uh, to uh, Gwen from Holly Springs. Good morning, Gwen.
0: Hey, uh, I have a friend who has a BiPAP or CPAP. But she uh-huh. won't use it because she says it makes her mouth too dry. Is there anything she can do about that?
2: Yeah. Now, some of them don't have, like, the the newest ones have a reservoir of of water that you fill it up with sterile water. And that keeps the humidity high enough. Um, so I don't know if it, particularly if it's an older one that I would, I would make sure that it does have a humidification setting on that, um, or the ability to do that. And if it doesn't, that might be the, the easiest fix. The other thing is, I know a lot of people either, you know, take a drink of water right before bed or something like that to keep it a little bit more hydrated. But the biggest thing is, um, that, the air that it's that it's forcing into your, or the pressure that's forcing into your nose or mouth or both, it um, it needs to be humidified. So um, that's that's the biggest thing. The other thing that you could try is um, you know doing a, um, a humidifier in the room, but that's because CPAP is a closed system. Um, it's not probably not going to help too much.
0: Um, so if she doesn't have one with a with a uh, reservoir, could she get one? Oh, yeah, I think care? so.
2: I would I would have her whoever she got that from. Uh, she should uh, inquire about that if she if she's not. I, you know she'll know because you have to add water to it. And if she doesn't, if she's not doing that, then she should call her um, sleep specialist and they can prescribe a different one. Yep.
0: Okay. Thanks a bunch.
2: Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering all kinds of good questions about all different kinds of topics, such a great, I always get so excited to hear all the different questions because it's just so varied um, and and really good questions too. Let me encourage you, if you got a question out there and you're like, no, nah, I'm the only one, I'm, this is not going to be beneficial, call because it's probably going to be one of those topics that other people are going to resound with. We hear that from our listeners all the time. Speaking of dry mouth, dry eyes, a lot of people will... They'll, you know, they wake up in the morning with hal- bad halitosis or uh, dry eyes, um, uh, where they're really just—it feels like you've got just sand in your eye, and you can't see very well for a long time. If your eye doctor has told you, you know, that you you've got some dry eyes, think about like the environment that you're sleeping in. A lot of people think, well, I've got my eyes closed; that should take care of it. Um, but if you do have a drier environment that you're sleeping in, particularly if there's a breeze blowing, like if you have a ceiling fan that's blowing directly on your face, even with your eyes closed, that can dry out your eyes throughout the night. So think about those kinds of things in your environment and maybe some, you know, even sometimes some small changes in that might improve some of those symptoms. But uh, there are some other conditions that do present like that concomitantly uh, that with dry eyes, dry mouth, uh, some of the uh, immunologic and ruminologic conditions sometimes have those symptoms. But you just want to think about your environment that you're into. Let's go to Joey in Meridian. Good morning, Joey. Yes,
1: good morning. Uh, About a year ago, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. I'm 68. And, uh, I, uh, gluten toxicity and I've, I've done a, a a pretty decent job of staying away from gluten, uh, learn what to, what to avoid. But anyway, the rash that was below my waist and then it, it, uh, I was on Dapsone. The dermatologist put me on Dapsone and, you know, stay away from gluten. Well, anyway, all of it went away. It was slow to go away on my left arm and, uh, but my scalp, I, I continued to have, uh, little bumps on my scalp and uh i've backed away from the dapsone it did not seem to be helping a lot whether i Uh took it or didn't take it uh and and i don't like taking you know that's kind of i think it's they have to do something on my liver every few months to make sure that the dapsone did not have a negative effect but uh well if i stay away from gluten will, will the itching will it will it go away
2: yeah, it's possible that that'll go away with time because um, those are those are some associated, you know, most of the symptoms that you have, and you know this, but uh, just to share with everybody else, most of the symptoms you have with celiac disease uh, or gluten sensitivity or, or uh, severe reactions from it tend to be in the gut, but um, there's extra uh, GI effects of those. So some people have headaches, fatigue, um, they'll have all kinds of different, problems with that and skin problems are very very common uh just because our skin is very sensitive to those kinds of those kinds of things so um you know you really you really need to think about that and sometimes seeing somebody who is looking at the bigger immunologic picture is a good idea um or you know if you're having a lot of skin symptoms which sounds like you are having those a lot of times, seeing a dermatologist at the same time may help out. Um, the other thing to think about, because you're over time, particularly, you know, even after you've been treated for celiac, if you if you're avoiding gluten food, gluten rich foods, or food, any foods with gluten in it, if you avoid those, uh, it may you may have had a lot of time when you weren't your your GI tract's not working right. And part of the associated things that can happen, which I'm sure they've checked you for, if, but if they haven't, this may be something else to think about. Um, you know, things like a lot of the vitamins, particularly vitamins that take a long time to store up in your system, may be low. And sometimes those can be manifested as skin disorders, too. So thinking about that at the same time is, is probably a good idea. But if you're not getting, you know, davasone is just another agent to sort of cut off partially part of your autoimmune response to this so that's uh that that's sort of how it works and um, if you're not getting a good response with that, seeing either an, an allergist, an immunologist, allergy immunology, they're you know sort of in the both special same specialty, or a uh, dermatologist might be a good idea, and they may even want to do a small skin biopsy just to make sure that's what we're dealing with. Sometimes, if you have unfortunately, if you've had celiac disease, you can develop other autoimmune symptoms. Uh, or conditions that may not be directly related to that. So we know a lot of people that do have some sensitivities or autoimmune responses with one disease are more likely to get it with another disease. So if it's not responding in the way that they're expecting it to, um, you know, it it probably is going to go away, but if it doesn't, if it's persisting or you're having new symptoms like you mentioned, you might need to see either a dermatologist or an allergist.
1: Okay. Well, I, you know, I am seeing a dermatologist. He's the one that prescribed the dye. Okay. And, uh, okay. It, uh, you know, it, like I say here, mm-hmm. when I pulled away from from gluten, and my wife thought that I'd have a terrible time staying away from beer because I'm very Irish and I drink a lot of beer. In my
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, that'll do you know, it.
1: Whenever when, whenever you're itching bad enough, I mean, yeah. you know, was like, I was I like Job in the Bible, and I, I was scraping, <laughs> I was, I yeah. was itching. Yeah. Now.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs>
1: Do what you got to do, you know, and and I did. But uh, anyway, I, I was just so uh, you know this this perpetual uh, itching on my scalp, you know. That's whether I was on the DAP zone or away from the DAP zone. I, I've never had any stomach issues, you know, which kind of yeah. confuses the dermatologists. Most of the time, on celiac disease, you have uh, right an irritated stomach, but I do not. But yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, I, I do appreciate your information, and i you know, I'm, I'm. I'm. scheduled to go back in December.
2: And
1: good. Yeah. Good.
2: I. I would. It, it, sometimes it does take a little bit longer with some of these uh, treatments, and is one of those. Um, when you have the the skin portion of that, so it might take a little bit more time. You know, between now and then, that's probably a good follow up time just to sort of see if you're going to have maximal response to it.
1: Okay. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much.
2: All right. Thank you for calling, Joey. Hey, uh, Dr. Jimmy? Yes, Kevin. Uh, I had a follow-up question to uh, to an earlier caller, something that I think would be beneficial for all us to be reminded about, and that was John, I think, called in from Alabama, had a little trouble with a, his doses and was afraid he was going to have pills left over after you know the prescription or the time that he was supposed to take them had expired. So remind us all what we should do if we find ourselves with any kind of medication that's kind of left over. How do we dispose of it and that sort of thing?
5: Yeah. So,
2: uh, you know, a lot of people want to bring that back to the physician's office. And uh, there's really, you know, disposing it in the garbage is probably a good idea if you've got some left over. Some people even, if this happens all the time with antibiotics, they'll be like, well, I took it, but I mean, I missed a couple of doses, so I'm just not going to take the rest of them and I'll save them up for another day, right? Probably not a good idea. And some medications are going to last longer than others, and some are going to break down and be ineffective. Um, number one, you want to, as best as possible, try to take the medication exactly like your physician prescribed it for as long as they prescribed it, uh, even if you're feeling better. Uh, sometimes it's there's there're very good reasons why you want to have a course, a full course of it. Um, but uh, just call them back because, and this is you're, I guarantee you, there is not. A person on this planet that has been prescribed medication that didn't get it wrong every once in a while even if it's chronic medication so making sure you know that because some medications uh, you can just take to the next day some you need to skip a dose before you are in some if you even skip one dose you need to let somebody know some of the transplant medications are like that or blood thinners can be like that so calling your physician with those questions, don't be afraid to do that and reach out to them cuz they can give you the direct information you need to if it is something more serious. Uh you know, our caller not a big deal um in doing that, but um uh, sometimes it can be it can be a bigger deal in that. And then if you have medication left over, uh it's best just to just to toss that. Um of course, you don't want to do it in a way that's going to Not gonna, you know, have somebody get into it, little hands get into it in the house. Certainly want to do that in a safe kind of way. A lot of people flush it down the toilet or down the sink. Probably not a good idea either. Sometimes those can cause conglomerates, so it's, uh, depending on what's in it, can sort of clog up your, your pipes. Um, and, um, it's, it's probably good to, to think of that as sort of a solid trash item, um, uh, to dispose of it, uh, correctly. And keep in mind, too, some medications, even if, a younger person touches them can have effects. So, um, you know, if you have any questions, you can always call your pharmacy, and some pharmacies will just go ahead and take the medication themselves and say, yeah, we'll get rid of it for you, uh, or if it's out of date. So, the great question, Kevin, as usual. That's Kevin Farrell, our producer. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's one that uh, we would rather, as physicians, that our patients called us with those kinds of issues rather than just sort of figuring something out of what they're gonna do. Um, so that's, and again, that's not a, that's not a big deal. Our nurses uh, in our clinic, um, they field those calls all the time and it's sort of what we should do to take care of our patients. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.